0: Happy Tuesday, you guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Birth Lounge Podcast. Today's episode is so much fun. It's also with someone who I admire so, so, so much, but before I do that, I wanted to tell you of two things. Stick around at the end of the episode because um, infertility rally is coming up this weekend, actually, and so you're you're kind of in the last days of getting tickets or being able to get tickets for that. And this is a an all day one day online event for anyone on the fertility path, whether you are wondering how to get started, or you've been navigating infertility, or you are actually seeking out answers as we speak, wherever you fall on that category, this rally is for you. Um, it's gonna be so good. There are so many good speakers. I followed so many of them already on Instagram, and that's actually how I found out about the rally. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna be popping in and out and um, saying hi and soaking up all the goodness. So I wanted to make sure that you knew about that. There's gonna be more information at the end of the episode, so stay tuned for that. And the second thing is um, doors open for not only Mama Biz Academy, but also the Birth Lounge very, very soon. So doors open for Mama Biz Academy on May 3rd, and doors open for the Birth Lounge on May 31st. So be on the lookout. Each of those are only open for five days. So when they open, make sure that you join. If you have been on the fence, I encourage you to reach out, DM me, send me a message comment on something send me an email get a hold of me or my team we can help you understand if you are right for either mama biz academy or the birth lounge and mama biz academy is for anybody who has a mama focused or mama owned business we are going to help you design create scale and grow your business so that you can have more freedom more money more time more whatever it is that that is your why that's what our goal is um and it doesn't really matter where you fall on the spectrum of of Uh, Being able to build your business and create it if you're just starting out or you have something that you've been working at and now you're ready to take it to the next level. Chelsea and I, this is Chelsea Skaggs from Postpartum Together. We have teamed up and that's what we do in Mama Biz Academy. We help you design, create, scale and grow your business. I love it so much. And then, obviously, the Birth Lounge, if you're hoping to have an informed and confident birth and you are hoping to have research-backed childbirth education, not what your hospital wants you to know about being a good patient. Um, if you wanna learn all of your choices, including what other countries recommend and what other countries governing bodies suggest, um, I think it's, it's healthy for you to have the whole entire spectrum so you get to see what feels best to you um, and then obviously everything there is evidence-based and, and we link the research for you so that you can you can see that yourself because I want you to be able to make the decisions about your birth yourself and again that opens on May 31st the birth sound opens on May 31st and Mama Biz Academy on May 3rd so you guys do not miss out on that okay enough about the programs let's dive into today's episode eee, This is such a good episode. I'm so excited, you guys. Um, I am interviewing someone that I admire so much. I think I've already said that, but Dr. Nathan Riley, who is I originally found him because he's the host of Obgyno Wino podcast, but he is an obgyn and a palliative care physician who sees birth as a natural process rather than a disease process. And you hear me talking about that all the time. Is that when you're pregnant, you're not sick, you are super healthy unless, of course, you have a high risk complication or you have some sort of complication or an issue that arises that makes you an Healthy, but for the most part, we can assume that if you're pregnant, you are healthy. Now, he is dedicated to changing attitudes around the birth world and, and, and approaches, um, you know, along with treatment of birthing women throughout this process. He recognizes that there are not only huge disparities, but also really unjust care and procedures. And he's committed to making sure that this landscape in maternity care changes. Same. (laughs) As the host of OB Gyno Wino, I have followed his work, and that is where I feel like he has shaped my practice so much. So one of the things I absolutely love is not only does he have the most amazing guests on the show, but he also breaks down the ACOG bulletin. So these are the stances that the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology make on certain topics. These are essentially the rules that your OB has to follow. And so he breaks it down in a way that we can all understand, and I appreciate that. I think it's great for anyone listening to check out OBGYNOWANO podcast if you're really into hard numbers or you want to see the evidence yourself or any medical provider um, that works in obstetrics. I believe this is such a helpful podcast for you. Now, I had the chance to meet Nathan on Clubhouse and I worked up the courage to ask him to be a guest on the podcast. And he said yes. Um, he's so friendly. So I expected nothing less. But, you know, I was super nervous to ask because um, I don't know. I just was. I respect him so much. And so, you guys, there's no amount of of justice that could do this moment. I'm really, really excited. Um, he's really given me so much inspiration um, and I know that there's a lot of topics that a lot of practitioners can't talk about or won't talk about or whatever it be um, and I do that and that can feel uncomfortable sometimes but you know what these conversations they have to happen and Nathan is not Uh, shy about going there he's happy to have this conversation and question the status quo and call out the bad care um, to make sure that birthing people are not only being respected and consent is being gotten but um, you know that throughout this process that it's gentle and these birthing people are treated with dignity so that they can walk away feeling empowered and supported rather than traumatized and demeaned so um, I'm super stoked to be having this conversation because in today's episode we're going to be talking about how you can have respectful care in pregnancy and birth and i hope that nathan and i are going to reset the way that you think about prenatal and labor care all right hang on tight here we go dr nathan welcome to the show
1: hey hee hee Thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) I am so excited to have you. Um, I just like fangirled in the intro and I'm ready to dive into this conversation. I think that, um, so first of all, I want to say thank you because I think a lot of providers are not willing to go into this um, scary and sticky space in medicine Um, but for me and my whole platform and this podcast and the birth lounge and our instagram anything that i touch is all about having those hard conversations not just because but because we have a goal at the end because we have something to fix Mm -hmm. right if we do not ever talk about the hard things we will never get them fixed and actually that is kind of how we've ended up here, both like Mm -hmm. as a nation, as humans, as medicine. We just never talked about the hard things. We never talked about the things that make people go, hmm, wait Mm -hmm. a minute, right? We just kind of brush that stuff under the rug. And so today in this conversation, I would really love to walk in those scary spaces, talk about those sticky conversations. One of my Favorite episodes of Ob Gyno Wino is with um, Hermine Hayes Klein and Doctor Brad's Boot Brad Boots Taylor, mm-hmm. um, and you guys talk about the shift of consent in the hospitals being shifted away um, from shared decision making to it just being assumed when someone walks onto the L&D floor. You just assume as providers that that person is there because they want your care and that is consensual care starting from then on. Um, and so let's let's start there. Um, I thought we could kind of dive into people's rights and how to say no and set boundaries, but I want to start off with how in the world did we get here? How did that really drastic shift happen from shared decision-making, very patient-focused, patient-driven care, Mm -hmm. you know, ages ago to now where we are, where people kind of follow blindly just because you have a white coat?
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a great question. And that is a great episode. That was one I was really proud of because Brad Boots-Taylor is, he really walks the walk. You know, there's a lot of people out there talking the talk. Brad is very, very much a physician who starts with what is important to my patient. And so in order to, I guess, answer that, I love to, I love to illustrate what happens at end of life as well. Like in our nation, we say, but we should do this, or we must do this. Whenever the, the body gets old, the kidneys start shutting down, the heart starts shutting down. And that might include, Hey, we have to put this person on a ventilator. So that that's a machine that breathes for you, or we have to put this person on dialysis. That's a machine that replaces your kidney function when your kidneys have, sh- have shut down. Well, if our attitude is that this must or should be done. The question then that I, that I do in palliative care and hospice, the, the, the question I bring to the table is according to who, and that's a really important distinction there. Um, many physicians would say, well, you know, I'm the physician, I'm the person that knows best. I've studied this for 10, 20 years. I've worked in this space. How would you, the patient or a family member, possibly, how could you possibly even know how to answer, the question of to do or not to do something. And and there's a subtle paradigm shift that I don't know it, at some point, it, you know, it, it, in in the human history, it, we kind of approach this place where um, perhaps the patient in the family just really doesn't know best. And yes, I am an expert, so to speak. I use air quotes because I will never be an expert. I feel like I'm constantly improving my practice and my craft. But there's this notion, and I was told this in residency, that it's your job to firmly recommend what you know is best. But we don't know what best is unless we know the outcome. And we don't know the outcome unless we ask the person what's important to them. So just as an end of life, a person might say, hell no, don't put me on a ventilator, even though every one of the doctors out there in the hospital is saying, well, he's 88. He probably has some more years to live. Of course, we should put him on the ventilator. And we do it without even thinking and we we act as if the patient and the family can't possibly make this decision because they're not experts. Well, people like Brad Boots Taylor and myself, there's several other OBGYNs I know of that I'm personally friends with, they're now approaching birth through a different lens. And Hermine has become a really really good friend of mine in the sense that she's actually an advocate for the change from the side of a lawyer who represents people who 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 are who are re- relating that when they are not given the information to make a truly informed decision and to exercise their right to not only bodily autonomy, but to the right, but, but to exercise the right to refuse treatment. Even if you, the expert, again, little bunny ears, the expert are saying, this is the only way to go forward. They have the right to refuse that treatment. And so from a legal standpoint, it makes more sense to think of it that way as physicians, as you've heard in our conversation, we are stuck in a culture that has a very, very hard time with the fact that, hey, even though we make a recommendation, it is still the patient's choice as to what happens. They can refuse a vaginal exam, they can refuse a needle in the arm, they can refuse an IV, they can refuse Pitocin, they can refuse literally everything under the sun, just because you walk into a hospital does not give us the right to presume that you've consented to us doing things to your body, especially when it involves me sticking my hand somewhere where it doesn't belong. This even, this even um, applies if I think that baby's going to die if we don't do an emergency C-section. The patient says, I have every, the patient has every right to refuse a knife across the abdomen as long as they're of, of sound decision-making capacity. And so the culture of medicine is very much so that I, the physician and the captain of the ship and everybody else must do what I say. There is a lot to say about how much training and experience a physician brings to the table, but what if that experience was applied to actually honoring a patient's wishes and providing adequate counseling and informed decisions. Um, and that's kind of where that's kind of where we're at. To answer your question more specifically, I don't know how we got here. I, I wish, I mean, I'm, I'm reading now into the sort of annals of midwifery and midwives have been doing this right the whole way through, which is why I stepped away from hospital-based practice. And my whole career now is taking me towards the, how can I support doulas and midwives the best I can in the community setting? um, where birth can, I think, happen with less intervention and better counseling and and more respect.
0: My gosh, my heart is bursting because I fall kind of like a puzzle piece right next to you because (laughs) a love and saying, how do I support OBs to be more like midwives? And how do I support midwives to get more respect in our country? How can we shift this back? Right now we have a 90-10 split, 90% in the hospital, 10% in the home. And it didn't always used to be like that. It used to be the other way, you know, 90 at home, 10% in the hospital. How do we flip that back? How can we get 90% of births back in the home where it actually belongs? And that is such a controversial statement and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be because the research is there to prove if you are low risk and you are appropriate for home birth, that is where you should birth. You know, um, that is a strong statement because it does come back to the fact of like, but what if someone doesn't want to birth at their home? It almost makes me say because they don't know their options. I feel like anyone who looks at home birth and is low risk and appropriate for home birth and then looks at hospital birth and they're truly concerned about safety, it, it doesn't take much down south, we say you don't have to have the two brain cells to rub together to know the difference that you know, home birth is just as safe or safer for people who right. are low risk and appropriate for home birth. So that's true. I, uh,
1: yeah. And it's and it's not, you know, my approach is actually I, I like to take it even one step deeper the the data around safety of birth in general, natural physiologic birth, that is we we like where we don't touch the woman, we let her do her thing, we let her she and her partner make out on their bedroom floor while they're going through the painful surges of childbirth as they're welcoming in this little beastie that's going to take over their lives, you know, for a little while. And it's, it, it, it is, of course, one of the most joyous, but also exciting and scary things that parents go through. Um, so, you know, I, I think about that. I, But, but in, in presenting the data, I don't even necessarily, I don't get into the conversation with other OBGYNs to say, Hey, but don't you realize it's safer because safety is a relative thing. The point here is that if I were to say, hee hee, um, I don't think you should ride a motorcycle and you're like, yeah, but I've seen people do it on TV and I'm going to do it. And I would say, but hee hee, you don't know how to ride a motorcycle. And you say, yeah, but I have a really good feeling that, uh, from the YouTube videos I watched, I can do it. It's not my job then to backhand you and knock you off your off the motorcycle and say, Hee hee, you're not hearing me. Don't do it because you're not allowed. Because I said you don't know how to do it.
0: Because it's, it's policy.
1: Right, right, exactly. It's my job to say, hee hee, I'm I have a Harley. It's in my garage. I am telling you that with your body weight or whatever, I could say, based on all of the evidence I have, mm-hmm. it's probably not safe. And you could say, Well, my but what if you said my goal? is to go out in a heap of flames and ride my motorcycle off a cliff. Then, you know, mission accomplished. Maybe that's a really good thing for you to do. My point being here is that it's not my job to tell a person what risks they're willing to assume. And for an OB-GYN in the hospital, what, what, what the big, the big argument I have, there's other OB-GYNs that are out there scouting people like me out and they're trying to take us down. Mm -hmm. But the, fortunately right now I'm preparing for my boards and I am not attending home births. However, I will be, I will be in the very near future when I get through my boards exam because I'm just too busy to be taking on birth work. But, but the, um, the the reality is that my colleagues that are working in the hospital, I have no ill will towards any OBGYN. The problem is that what we were we were taught to do in our training and what our colleagues in practice with us are demanding of us is to fall in line with a narrative that is stripping away the conversation around risks and benefits and not and, and giving people real choice it's, it's come down to the way that I interpret the evidence is the way that people should approach their own birth. And that's just not like in what world does that make any sense? So when we go in and we say, hey, I'm going to do a vaginal exam now, that's not consent. You yeah. haven't given the per- a person the opportunity to say, no, wait a second. I don't want your hand there. But instead, we just say, hey, this is what we're doing because now you're here in the hospital. And so when people are like, why is the culture like this? Like, why in, in my colleagues, you know, why are midwives and doulas telling people that home birth is okay? Like, how could they do that? Blah, blah, blah. It's um, like, it's none of your damn business. And, and maybe the, maybe the people that are having home births are actually afraid of being in the hospital because the stories of how many C-sections are happening and how things are being done to them without their consent. And people are not even giving them the information to make an informed decision. They're using coercive language. Like if we don't do this, hee hee, your baby's gonna die. You don't want your baby to die. So let's just go to the operating room. That's not really consent. That's not a conversation. You've just coerced a person into saying, if I don't agree with you, then it means I must agree with my baby dying. That must be okay with me. And that is not the purpose of informed decision-making. So, you know, perhaps the question about why is home birth and midwives, why, are the, why is this birth culture changing for the better? might I add? Why is it changing? Well, the 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 answer is not that everybody's going insane, Mr. OBGYN or Mrs. OBGYN. It's because there is good reason for people to be afraid to be in the hospital because you're not willing to have a conversation as to what they want happen want to happen to their bodies. I yield my
0: time. People are getting smarter <laughs> because people are starting yeah. to take control of their own healthcare, right? Um, right. So when it comes to home birth and people say like, why are doulas and midwives telling people home birth is okay? I always, my, my answer is always because it's evidence-based. Yeah. Like there's, what are you going to say? Just because it's science that you don't like, doesn't mean that it's (laughs) not science or doesn't mean that the science is not valid. The science behind home birth, you know, works on the front of consent. I always like to equate it back to sex and it should be a question you would never have sex with someone who says, we're going to have sex now. That's the same thing as saying, I'm going to stick my fingers in your vagina and have a cervical exam now. That is not consent. Consent is a question. Consent is, do you want to have sex? Consent is, do you want a cervical exam? Right? It It is a question. And if it is not something that you would allow someone to talk to you in a sexual space, this is not appropriate in your birth because those two worlds overlap so much. And we know that, and it has to be treated as such. And I think hospital birth and just some, just the way that some OBs practice, some midwives too practice this way is, is so assertive that it almost strips the humane piece of birth and that very sensual, gentle, human piece of birth away mm-hmm. from it because we're so medical focused. We gotta check those boxes off. We gotta make sure that we get all these things done. We gotta make sure that we chart yeah. everything just just the way, right? Um mm-hmm. and it 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 really just disrupts the process. So I want to talk about now Whose responsibility is this? Because everybody has a little bit of responsibility here. Medical schools, stop teaching bad content. Stop Mm -hmm, teaching mm -hmm. that black patients have higher pain tolerances than white patients. Like what, (laughs) you know, providers and professionals stop practicing in ways that are harmful to your patients or disruptive to the birth space. If you're specifically in birth and reproduction, you know, for patients Start being in an active role in your healthcare. Take control of these situations. Start guiding these conversations. As a OBGYN and a professional yourself, where does the responsibility lie in your eyes?
1: I think that it's a reflection really of our society. I don't think it really has as much to do with medical education um, as as we as we think. And I'm only pushing back because I used to think that as well. Um, I do think we could do a much better job. The problem is that in four years, there is so much information to obtain in medical school that, you know, and 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 you're it's not like we're reading in the textbooks that black people have higher pain thresholds, or as one nurse once told me, like, well, black people have thicker skin, so you have to actually like go a little deeper. Um
0: oh
1: my gosh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um it it the I think that the problem is that what we're what we've all taken to is this idea of evidence-based medicine and evidence is only good for so much. Mm -hmm. There has to be a level of apprenticeship that takes place where you have people modeling good behavior within a healthcare system. The other problem is that, you know, where we get our, the majority of our medical education is not medical school. It's in residency training. Residency is, you know, a hundred hours a week. You lie in your, on your, your, your Time sheets and you say you're doing 80 hours a week you're up you're there for like 100 hours a week you're not sleeping you're not pooping you're not having sex you're not laughing you're not having fun you're just doing the work to get by and so that you know people don't get upset with you and you don't kill somebody And by the way it's very very hard to kill somebody um <laughs> so so another another problem is that we are so hellbent on keeping every single person and baby safe that we're actually willing to compromise Human human rights and in, in, in childbirth, um, for the purpose of 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 avoiding every last possible out bad outcome, and so within these medical systems that are training us in residency, it's run by business people who have no clinical experience, who have no connection to birth or women or you know, racial injustice, like it's, it's business people that are there to serve a board of directors and they have to make money in the hospitals. Even if that hospital is a nonprofit hospital, even if that hospital has trainees that are doing the the majority of the work. So in our culture, we are, like I said, we're hell-bent on, on, um, on safety. We're, 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 our idea of safety is that if, if any human being is harmed or is not going to live as long as possible, then we're doing something wrong. And so you know, TSA is a great example, there's a bombing on an airplane. And now we've changed the entire culture of airplane, of airplane um, safety procedures without actually seeing an improvement in the outcomes. The same has happened with birth in the hospital, where what we are learning as residents is how do we practice quote safety, and avoid every last bad outcome of every woman and baby out there. The problem with that notion is that number one, it forgets that there's a person here with an entire story that precedes their birth and without talking about that and without diving into maybe how their last births went histories of you know traumas like traumatic things like rape or or sexual abuse or or you know a domestic violence something like that you really can't understand how who they are and without knowing who they are we can't help you get through this really challenging experience where you're passing through this spiritual transformation from maiden to motherhood and your baby's the soul has decided to pass through you and physically come out in the form of a little baby. Like there's something very special and sacred there, but but our our hell bent, our our, our bent towards safety, says if I can control as many of these variables as possible then we're guaranteed to get a good outcome. But the problem with that is, again, is like the motorcycle example. I don't know what a good outcome is until I know who you are and what's important to you based on your values, your story, your relationship with your partner, the social support you have at home, and what your past life experiences have been. So when we say that a person has has learned that a black person has a higher pain tolerance, it's because somebody taught them that. And it's somebody who's been... working through a system for maybe 30 years where they do things the same way every single time the same misinformation is passed down through the the ranks because there's somebody in a hospital administrative suite that has said this is how we have to do things in order to avoid every bad outcome it's obviously far more complicated than this but i mean if we're if we're talking about like racial injustice in birth look at what's happening in Louisville, Kentucky with Breonna Taylor or George Floyd or I mean like the BLM movements. Like we are nowhere near a place where we can say that racism is not a thing in the United States. So the fact that that a nurse thinks that black people have thicker skin or whatever else, like that is not a surprise. Like that should not be a surprise because we have done nothing as a nation to move out of racism. I mean, even in the deep South where you're from and where I'm currently living in Kentucky, which isn't deep South at all, Racism is very, very real and very, very active. And so, um, gosh, I mean, I'm saying a lot here, but I guess what I'm trying to illustrate is just how complicated it is to go through a system to be trained to do things a certain way that may or may not be in the patient's best interest. But all you're trying to do is survive through that system. There's few of us that come out of that and actually have a very open mind. It would be like somebody growing up in Mississippi, moving to Boston, and having to open themselves up. To the to the idea that oh, not every white Christian person is supposed to be at the top of the of the totem pole, and um, if you then apply that to the already complex nature of birth within a very I don't want to say corrupt, but a very malaligned value system of a medical of a medical hospital model, um, dare I say, industrial complex. Yep. Um, we have a very very big task on our hands. Hee <laughs> hee.
0: We do. And, you know, I think um, sometimes it, it makes me feel like a loner. And if I my move from Mississippi to Boston made me feel like a loner already. Um, I had envisioned this like really warm and fuzzy place that I would be, that I could balance the two and I could understand the South. And I do understand the South. I spent 24 years of my life down there. Right. Yeah. I totally get that. And it is a huge part of who I am. I think if I didn't grow up in the South, I don't think I would be the hee hee that I am today. And I thought I could balance that with like being in Boston, and, mm-hmm. and I would just have like both of these communities, but I have found myself kind of with not no community, but definitely not the the both sides that I thought, um, because, yeah, I, I think I find myself in this weird place where I do understand both sides, and I'm able to kind of make those meet for me, but not everybody's open to hearing both sides, and so when you are open-minded, Mm -hmm. It almost makes you feel stranded a little bit, or in my experience, it has. And talking about, you know, working within a really broken system, um, one of the things that irks me the most is when providers will say, well, our only goal is a healthy baby and healthy mama.
1: Oh, I hate that phrase, yeah. yeah.
0: Really? What is your, what's your definition of healthy? Because if it's alive, which is how you leave most people after birth, just plain alive, that is not my definition of healthy, right? That is not my goal. So before we go around talking about healthy baby, healthy mama, we should all kind of reconcile our definitions of healthy, because I, th- I think we're playing on different fields here. Um, it just, it really burns me up. And it's something that I think providers sometimes use in a manipulative, manipulative way to get patients to It's coercion. things. Totally. They'll say, yeah. well, I'm just trying to keep your baby healthy as if to insinuate, if you choose anything else, your baby in danger.
1: Right, right. And now I'm up against you. Now I have to protect your baby from you because you insane person won't take my recommendations as a white man. Like you won't accept what I think is best. Mm -hmm. And so now I have to use language to put you on the wrong side of the story. You know, one thing you you did bring up recently, you know, a bit ago that I didn't really touch on was the, the sort of like the evidence of home-based birth. Well, It wasn't, you know, our our parents' generation, I'm 36, so our parents' generation largely wasn't breastfeeding. You know, like there was a lot of people not breastfeeding because, hey, we had this new scientific formula that we still use today. And we say, hey, it's probably best just to find a good formula. Well, it wasn't till like some, you know, white guy probably at Harvard who's balding and has like a George Costanza looking hair. And he was like, you know what? We fascinating evidence, guys. We found that breastfeeding is actually okay. So like- So the problem I have with that is that our, our culture is broken in a way where we're now saying we need evidence to back up what our natural physiology is. Exactly. Nature. And, and my perspective is, and this is something that Marion green of Indie birth taught me. She's a fantastic woman. That would be so great to get to know. She, she just had her 10th baby and she is very, very good friends with me of, of my family. And, um, she had said something, she's like, you know, and she just like spit this out. And and she's it was like in a succinct sentence, the burden of proof lies to the person, the practitioner, the doula, whoever, that wants to diverge from the natural physiology of childbirth. Love I mean, and that right there is enough for me to say, hey, how is putting a person in a dorsal lithotomy position in stirrups with bright lights, with all these strangers in the room, how is that okay for birth? And so I don't need the evidence to say, he he, this is why I, I don't generally go to the evidence. I don't need the evidence to support out of hospital birth. This is the natural physiologic process that is birth. Now, if something arises when you or a midwife or a home a home birth doctor detects, hey, there's something not right here, we now are the experts to say, hey, listen, patient and partner, here's what we think is happening. Here's what's going on here in our in our in our gut, in our our experience. It's leading us down this path where we're worried about this kiddo and worried about you. If I were to present that and the patient were to say, I'm sorry, I will not go to the hospital. Let's try to do it here. I might say something like, oh, well, what if something bad happens? Like that's a part of the process of birth. If they were to say that to me, that does not, that does not make me responsible or neglectful or whatever. I have provided you the opportunity to go to the hospital. And if you say, hell no, then we have done our job. We just try to keep it at home. It's, So in other words, words, the the data can only get us so far. It can help justify certain things that we're doing. But if we're going to diverge from the natural physiology of birth, the burden of proof, proof is not even a thing that happens in science, by the way. The burden of suggestion is on the scientific community to show, demonstrate that it's actually better for us to do things in a non-naturally physiologic way. And we have not done that. Instead, we rely on incredible people like you and your cohort to say, well, guys, the evidence actually supports this other thing. And and OBGYNs are still saying, prove it. Proof is a mathematical concept. You can't prove anything through the data. So unless we have really, really, really good reason to believe that from the data, hey, our best, best guess is that things happen better in the hospital, then, what, then how did we... How, how do we get here? And we all know how we got here. It was an overhauling of the system by the American Medical Association and a bunch of white OBs that wanted to take over childbirth and kick midwives into this caricature of an old dirty maid or whatever and
0: monetize it, make money. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, there's there's definitely a financial incentive there a couple hundreds of years ago is when that all started. But now that we're here, now that we actually are smartening up and patients are starting of wisening up to the fact that, hey, being in the hospital is not necessary and sometimes it may actually be more dangerous we should be running with that. We really should be promoting that. And, um, that's my goal. Like to get as many people on board with this idea as possible.
0: Same. Okay. So let's talk about these patient rights. We've done a lot of talking about like, you can say no, and you don't have to do this and you have options. And you even mentioned like, you can refuse a C-section, even if your provider feels like your baby is in danger and you are of coherent, you know, kind of state of mind how does that look? So I know how I teach people to go through that in the birth lounge. I have scripts uh, for pregnancy that you can use in your prenatals for birth so that you can use to have these conversations to help guide you in these conversations. But what, what are your kind of tips? What advice do you have for people? Because it's very scary to go against your doctor. How do you know And I guess maybe you don't, but how do you know that they are using things in a coercive manner and then revert the conversation? Because it's really hard to say, hey, that felt fear-based or hey, that Mm -hmm. felt like you were trying to manipulate me.
1: Um, I, I would presume if I was a pregnant woman going into the hospital, and by the way, everything that we're saying about home birth it doesn't mean that every person has to choose home birth. You may choose to have a hospital-based birth. My wife had a hospital-based birth and because she felt more comfortable there. Like that's also okay. The point is, is that people have the option. So I guess that the, what I would always be suspicious of is if a person isn't giving you an option, if they're using language that makes it sound like you're being cornered into agreeing with them. Um, In other words, when, when somebody uses a language like you had just said, something like, um well if we don't do this that then this will happen you don't want that to happen do you like if anybody ever says you wouldn't want that would you that's coercive language because okay. if you if you say no then obviously we, we we disagree but if you and if you say yes of course you'd say yes because that's the right thing to say so when we're fishing for the appropriate response that is the use of coercion in order to, manipulate a person into compromising their rights. And what the rights we're talking about, hee hee, are the right to bodily autonomy, to make decisions about what happens to your body. And the important one that everybody forgets is the right to refuse treatment. Even if you're the greatest OBGYN or surgeon alive and you know you can get that baby out safely, it is not your prerogative as to whether or not a knife comes across her abdomen. And so that would be my that would be my first, my first point of contention there, right? Is like The way that we're trained to use language and consent is blah 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 these bad things are it can happen but we suggest doing it this way because this will happen blah 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 you wouldn't you know you know all we want is a healthy mom healthy baby i think we should go to the operating room well if you don't say i don't want to go to the operating room that means you must not want healthy mom healthy baby so there's the there's the the language right there so we need to really dramatically change our language if i had residents that i was training i'd be training them on this but i don't i'm not going to be doing that anytime soon the other thing I th- that everybody forgets, and Hermine brought this up for me, and I actually introduced it in the intro of one of my podcast episodes, was the patient bill of rights that I, I knew was a thing, but I never actually read through it. And every hospital has a list of, uh, has their patient bill of rights. It's available for free on their website. And it'll say on there that you have the right to inform decision-making in, in multiple bullet points. And so... <laughs> Look, if you're going to be going to the hospital, you know, Hospital A down the street for your birth, print that out, look at it, read through it with your partner, and like know what your rights are. And once you know what your rights are, you'll notice that the way that people use language is it's like they haven't read the patient bill of rights. And that's important. And this is not to get people in trouble, by the way. This is so that you get the best care possible.
0: It's just to give you back control, right? This is your health. This is your care. Also you're a paying customer, So this person is serving you make sure, you know, on my Instagram, I have this pyramid and I have, you know, how traditional care looks and it's the doctor and then the patient and then her team. Um, and then I flip it and I say, flip the script and we're going to flip that dynamic. We're going to put that patient back on top and then the provider and then mm-hmm. the team mm-hmm. underneath that. Right. And that's all it is. Yeah. I'm not interested in getting anybody in trouble. Look, the minute that we start firing or locking up OBs for practicing like this, we're not gonna have any OBs left. And we don't exactly. want a world with no OBs. We right. want a world with good OBs. So right. I right. um, you know, I treat this much like I treated the toddlers in my classroom. I'm not gonna punish you because it doesn't do any good. All I'm gonna do is show you. I'm gonna, you know show you how i want you to do it i'm gonna show you a better way a safer way a way yeah. that doesn't hurt your friends when you run through the classroom like that i'm going to show you how you can help people birth yeah. without hurting them right. um yeah this is i think this is so powerful for so many people because it does feel like you can't say no and i think that's an important thing if you have if your flags are going up and you're like but i feel like i can't say no to this mm-hmm. That's a problem. That's Mm -hmm. a problem. The definition or part of the definition of informed consent is that you actually are free to choose without any outside influence, right? In order for it to be consensual, you should not have any sort of outside influence that's swaying you one way or the other. And if you feel like you can't answer both yes and no to that question, it's probably, um, you know, there's probably a little bit of manipulation there. So just yeah. you look out for it, you yeah. know? And I think it happens even from our best OBs because it is so much ingrained in the medical culture, right? Like even the best OBs and, or midwives that I say, you're not going to have any problem with this person. They are so respectful. Sometimes even they say things where I'm like, God, right. I'm right. so sorry that they said that.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. And you know, I have uh, on my podcast, I go over the practice bulletins from ACOG and we were talking about this before the show, but. I'm very, very thoughtful about my language and I am going to have to eat my words sometimes. Um, A a really simple simple, um, exercise is, listen to how many times I say on my podcast the word delivery, because I don't do shit at the birth. I am there to accommodate the patient and their partner and to make sure that things are going okay, I guess. But the... (laughs) The fact that we use the word delivery suggests that i'm actually in there doing something now if the if the if there's a breech birth and the head is stuck and i have to get involved because i want that baby to not become asphyxiated hey yeah i guess i had some role or if i do a c-section yeah i had some role um but the fact that we we just kind of defer to this language of delivery is is a conscious thing so even changing that word to birth when i'm speaking on the podcast is enough for me to be like god trying to change that and i can't and, you know, like Rebecca Decker's book comes yeah. to mind, right? Like babies are not pizzas. And, you know, she sent me that book and I was like, okay, I'm reading this book. I wear the shirt, like babies are not pizzas. And um, I think she's super great. She's doing great work. I, love I I told her, I was like, Rebecca, I still can't stop using the word delivery sometimes. And she's like, I know me too. I wrote a freaking book with the, in, in the title and it's just a, a matter of practice. But if a person isn't demonstrating the practice on how to change our language, then you sit in the world of, 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 of the maternity care in the hospital and you're just hearing it over and over and over delivery room five, like, Oh, I, you know, I, I had a four deliveries today or whatever. And it's just this r- routine thing. Well, if you then um, extrapolate that to the whole language of consent and risks and benefits and this whole thing, it's not, it's not even a lack of respect. It's that this is so practiced, It's so ingrained And the only thing that 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 a pregnant woman can do if they're in that situation is to just keep your ears open and keep your heart forward. It's not even suggestive of an OB not respecting you or not respecting birth. Even the best OBs are going to somehow slip up and say, "Well, you know, I just really want to get that kiddo out." You know, you know, I I I think we should do the the C section. They may walk out of the room saying, "Like, ah, I've been working on this because I listened to Hee Hee's podcast." And, um, it's, it's kind of on us then as, as I'm sorry, not us, but I I guess me as a partner and my wife as a pregnant woman, um, to just, to just remember, like, we're all humans. We're all trying to do a good thing here. And if you were there and you say, no, I, I, I think I need a little more time to think about that. If they push you and they start talking, talking to you otherwise, and they start making you feel bad for saying no, or needing more information then say, I'd like to have a different doctor. Definitely and tell them why and say like I really don't feel like you're hearing me I don't want to have a c-section. I want to try doing this other thing. My doula's coming She's going to get me in different positions. I want more time It's not on OBGYNs if you're an OBGYN out there listen listen to this it is not on you It is not your job to guarantee a good outcome because there are going to be bad things that happen in childbirth Regardless of your exceptional skills the the area the learning edge for us is how do we accommodate a woman's rights and her needs, and her experience, and how do we step back, stand shoulder to shoulder with them, and try to um, try to augment their experience, as opposed to overhauling their experience, as if we were the captain of the ship? We are not. And the more that we try to tamper with birth and deviate from physiology, the worse things happen are are, are going to become in our country.
0: The more we're going to mess it up. Yeah. If you yeah. are an be listening out there, I want to tell you just a, a little bit of. Something. It's not indicative of you or your skills or you as a doctor or a provider when bad things happen. So I grew up on a farm. Um, I grew up in Mississippi on a farm. We always had lots of animals. We always had a variety of animals. And so um, birth is not new to me. I got to see, you know, oh, that's so
1: cool. I love that.
0: <laughs> I got to see all sorts of farm animals, you know, even ducks who laid eggs, that's birth, but it's very different than, you know, even mammalian birth. Yeah. Um, Bad things happen. You know, we had calves die, we had you know, pigs die. We had eggs that didn't hatch. That's nature. Um, you know, bad things are going to happen regardless of whether we have the highest trained medical professionals there or not. Mm-hmm. Can't take that personally. And I think your job as the OB, which I am far from an OB, um, but my my opinion of your job is, um, you know, to be there and to make sure that that person is feeling respected and I think you hit the nail on the head when you said you can't, you know, you can't kind of force people to take your opinion just because you are the highest trained person in that room. It does come down to that birthing person being able to right. be in control because at the right. end of the day, the story that they take with them is not going to be, um, you know, the things that they, that you necessarily suggested to you, it, to them, it's going to be how you made them feel about the decisions that they made. Right. Uh, and that's the bottom line. So, Right. right. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, you said it, you said it so well there, there's, there's, um, there's a lack of, there's a lack of human humanity, you know, in, in, in this process, and um, this is still a person who's going through this important thing. And we do need to just, we do need to change a lot. And the, the little thing we can do is just to have respect for every single woman who's going through this transformation. Um, and and even when you talk to people who have had 10 kids, every single birth is different. So don't presume you know anything about them, what their hopes are, what their dreams are, what their anticipations are, um, and and just and, and hear them out, ask questions and hear them out. I, I wanted to share a very brief little story The when I was in residency, I remember this idea of birth plans leads to a lot of eye rolling in the hospital. Yep. And the reason for that is the reason that birth plans our, our, um, the, the cause of eye rolling is summarized very easily by one of my residency attendings. Attendings are the supervising doctors that train us with, to do what we do. And he was a very well-respected everything. He's the one that taught us how to do breach forceps and whatnot. I don't do forceps. Those things are menacing, but he did, we did one together once and it was like, wow, I got a forceps, you know, I, I got to practice or whatever. Um, but he had said, you know, this is the guy who's like the, the most respected guy, the most published, he's just a really great guy. Everybody loves him. And he kind of scoffed and kind of did one of those little, <laughs> whenever we were doing board sign out ones, which is when we're like kind of passing patients over to the oncoming shift. And they said, well, she came in with a birth plan. She's got, um, it's like two or three pages here. It's up on the wall. And his comment was, you would never walk onto an airplane and hand the pilot instructions on how to fly the plane. And think about that. I mean, think about how bad a metaphor that is. Um, as you know, the, the, the presumption is that we as OBGYNs can control this and we cannot control the outcome of birth. We cannot control healthy mom, healthy baby, because or what you're you, you,
0: playing, that's not your right. plane that you're flying. You're not that's
1: right. Person. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the metaphor is completely off altogether. And, and if we were to presume that we can actually guarantee a good outcome in the way that a pilot should be able to guarantee that the plane's flaps are working is just nonsense. Because in that case, who's the captain? Of course, the OBGYN is the captain, but I, but I, I can't say this enough. It is not your job to ensure a good outcome. It's it's your job to maybe explore what a good outcome looks like for that patient. And without asking, without actually having a conversation and building a relationship, you're just hurting people, and so if a healthy mom and healthy baby means yeah, their heart and heart and lungs are working when they leave the hospital. Okay, I guess that's one possible outcome. But like you said, and I talk about this in one of my most recent podcast episodes with Tracy Vogel. The she's an anesthesiologist, OB anesthesiologist that does trauma counseling um, in the setting of maternity care. If 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 in keeping mom and baby healthy and, and having you know them sort of their heart and lungs working when they leave the hospital. If that's your only goal, then, you, then, then basically what you're saying is you're willing to traumatize a woman by doing an unconsented vaginal exam, holding her arms and legs down in order to quote, deliver the baby, um, not realizing that the harm that that does on a deeply emotional, psychological, spiritual level could far outweigh any potential hazard to their physical body. But because you've presumed what's right for her, you, you've, you've kind of been blinded. that reality and so there's a lot of women who are walking around without having ever told their birth story whether it was whether you think it's traumatic or not and without telling your birth story people don't know who you are they don't know what that experience was like and there's 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 healing there in just talking to people about you know how did your last birth go and if they say well i was raped when i was 12 and then i had a c-section and they strapped my arms down and then five people swarmed me and were putting things in my vagina and in my bladder and putting a blue sheet over my face. It felt suffocating. And they're just telling me it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And I don't even hear my baby cry afterwards. Like that is a traumatic experience. So just because you got the woman and the baby out of the hospital, you've re-traumatized this person who has a history of rape. They have a difficult time connecting, bonding with the baby, bonding with their partner. They feel potentially very broken inside, but Hey, healthy mom, healthy baby. And that's a hard thing to talk about to compare birth trauma with rape, but this is a very, very real, that is a good metaphor.
0: Definitely. People are
1: saying it all the time to me.
0: And even how that re-traumatization is going to impact Mm
1: -hmm.
0: that person's now parenting. Yeah. Yeah. Their physical healing, even as you know, acutely down to like even breast milk production, right? Mm -hmm. If you're re-traumatized. Mm-hmm. How can we honestly expect your body to heal in a way that can also sustain, establish, maintain breast milk supply? And if that's mm-hmm. acutely identi or you know, if that's acutely um, attached to someone's identity and they they like are very, 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 very dedicated to being able to breastfeed. their birth almost essentially robbed them of that, you know um if it doesn't work out after that it's possible they'll look back and wonder if their birth if it had gone a different way would they have been able to breastfeed and that lifelong like wondering that shouldn't come after a natural event like birth it shouldn't leave you with lifelong questions of what if or i wish i had done or um even trying Mm. to run from the story you know hoping to never have to replay your birth story that's horrible that's it tough. is.
1: It is. Yeah, and I mean the the big problem here is is not that sometimes bad things happen in birth because they do and mm-hmm. it's something that's out of our control. The the real problem is that after a bad thing happens, we as a society are not capable. We've we've proven ourselves incapable and at present with sitting with another person's pain. So we say things like, "Well, you can have another baby." Or or well, "Hey, at least Fill in the blank. At least, you know, you didn't die. How is that helpful? Like that's not empathy. That's sympathy. And sympathy only goes so far. We as a, we as a people, as men and women, the masculine, the feminine, we have a deep need for healing right now. And the healing comes from hearing a person's pain and sitting with that pain and and being reminded that there is trauma, there is, there is injury happening here on a moral level, on a deep emotional and spiritual level it goes far beyond the metrics of healthy mom, healthy baby. Um, and I really can't, I mean, I could say so, 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 so much about that. You know, how can we actually just get, like you You'd said before we started recording, how, how, how can we get people comfortable with asking those hard questions? You know, I do it every day as a hospice physician, like, hey, we're all going to die. We don't get a vote. You don't get a vote if you're going to die. What you do get a vote about is how the time looks from now until then. And that, that starts when you're, 18, maybe when you have your, your frontal cortex is developed, but especially when you're 85. And if you're looking down the, the tunnel and you can see the end is nigh, let's talk about the hard stuff. Cause if we don't, it doesn't, doesn't make it. It's not something. Okay. You, yeah. Your mortality doesn't fade away if you just hide under the covers. So let's talk about those hard things. People don't see birth or other medical interventions in the same way. And so that's the one area where palliative care and the communication skills of a palliative care physician really come into play where it's like, hey. We can do chemo, but man, you're, you might get three more months and you might be sick as a dog for the rest of your life. How does that sound to you? And they might say, hell doc, I want to live as long as possible. That's great. I've asked you. And now I know let's freaking do it. On the other hand, you might not want to be sick. So maybe chemo is not the right thing to do. So just because again, just because we could and should do something does not mean that we must. And if a person's goals are not in line with that intervention, whether it be a C-section or induction of labor or any of these other things that we just over rely on as, as a means of providing safety, assuming we know what a person's values are. Um, I don't see any difference, you know, and we can get a lot better. There's basic communication skills that we're lacking in medicine and docs and midwives. You guys have the power here. You stepped away from the negotiation table and you're letting people in suits and the C-suite dictate how you practice and your partners, because you're not brave enough to stand up to them. Like it's, are you going to look back and say, well, geez, I'm glad I did. You know, I'm glad I had a 50% C-section rate because thank goodness. I, I don't think that's something that we should really be proud about. I think we can do better. And it's time. We
0: can do better. It is time. And, and our, um, our people deserve better. Our babies deserve better. Um, so I will leave you with this, you guys, this has been an episode with so many nuggets of wisdom. Um, and Dr. Nathan, thank you so much for being here, but you guys remember, The goal of birth is not to control the actual birth process. That is nature's job. Your job as OBs, as providers, professionals, midwives, nurses, doulas, and the birthing person and your partner, your job is to just know what is coming down the pipeline and know how to respond and react. That's it. All we can do is sit back. Respond and react to what nature throws our way in birth. Um, Thank goodness we have OBs and midwives and nurses and doulas who know what's coming down the pipeline to us. Um, But your job is not to control the birth process, relinquish that to nature. Let nature do its job and and we can respond and react and keep people safe along the way. Dr. Nathan, oh my goodness, thank you so much for being here. If people (laughs) wanted to find more, you know, of your information, if they wanted to connect with you, how can people continue to learn from you other than your, your podcast, which I talk about all the time?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was a uh, flattering when you had told me on clubhouse that you actually were aware of my podcast. Um, <laughs> Obigaino wino is a really good place to hear more about the medical stuff. Um, I'm also, you know, I feel like a really good way to, to sort of help heal this, this divide between the hospital and community-based birth work is to provide access to me I'm providing access to me at no charge whatsoever. I don't feel comfortable profiting from the provision of medical advice when that's what you know white male OB/GYNs have been doing for so long, and um, especially white male OBGYNs, But it's not this is not a male-dominated field anymore. Um, so through my website, you can collaborate with me at no cost. I fit people into my schedule all the time, and that's. Um beloved holistics, B-E-L-O-V-E-D holistics.com. You can just contact me through there. I've got all kinds of good references. And it's literally a, an open, open access to an OBGON to collaborate in whatever way, shape, or form, whether you're a patient, you want to tell me your story, you want to f- want me to review the fetal heart rate tracing and find out why your C-section was emergent. Um, if you want me to help you with your your bladder pain, um, if you want to lose weight, like those are all things that I'm really, really good at. And If you're a midwife or doula and you want some support, want some backup, I'm here for you too. No cost, it's a gift.
0: That is awesome, that truly is a gift. You're a godsend, Dr. Nathan. Thank you so, so, so much. I appreciate it. For everybody else, happy Tuesday. I will see you guys next week. Thanks, Hihi. Hey
1: everyone, it's Allie and Blair, the co-founders of Fertility Rally. And we wanted to tell you about an amazing event we're hosting on Saturday, April 17th.
0: The event is called Fertility Rally Live, an all-day virtual celebration of the infertility community for anyone and everyone building their modern families and seeking empowerment, education, support, and community. Our speakers are some of the biggest names and brightest minds in the infertility community and beyond. Our morning keynotes are Mina Starsiak hawk and Steve Hawk from HGTV's Good Bones, and our afternoon keynote is Jessica zucker PhD and author of the acclaimed memoir, I Had a Miscarriage. In addition to those two amazing keynotes, we're hosting a couples panel, a female physicians panel, and 16 breakout sessions covering everything we could squeeze into one day, including surrogacy, IVF, pregnancy after infertility, male factor infertility, donor conception, embryo adoption, recurrent pregnancy loss, and so much more. There will also be tons of giveaways all day long from fertility-friendly and wellness brands. And of course, a happy hour with a very special guest, a VIP after-party, and a virtual swag bag worth hundreds of dollars. If you or someone you know is navigating infertility, you will love our event. We are here to empower and educate you and have some fun along the way, of course. Tickets are on sale now at fertilityrally.com. Head over to our IG at Fertility Rally for even more info on speakers and tickets. We can't wait to rally with you.